We have an anchor that keeps The Anchor of the Soul with Mike Hickson, preacher for the Olive Branch Church of Christ in Olive Branch, Mississippi. Rock which cannot move, grounded firm and deep in the Savior's love. And now, Mike Hickson. We're going to be looking in our study today at Acts chapter 16. The theme of our study today what must I do to be saved? This is really one of the most profound questions that we read of in Scripture. And there are a lot of people in days gone past that have asked the question, what do I need to do to become a child of God? This question is relevant. It's relevant because all of us have spiritual needs. All of us stand in need of the blood of Christ. And as we sang a moment ago, that which washes away our sins is the blood of Christ. Paul said in Ephesians 1 at verse 7, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. And then also John in the Revelation, in Revelation chapter 1 at verse 5, said unto him who loved us and washed us from our sins by his own blood. And so we understand that the basis for forgiveness is the blood of Christ. And so the question is, how then do I contact the blood of Christ? What do I need to do to become a child of Almighty God? And so with that in mind, we look at Acts chapter 16, and here we have an account of Paul and Silas, his traveling companions, in Philippi, Paul had already had great results in Philippi, and Philippi was a Roman colony. Lydia and her household had been converted. And so in verse 16, we find Paul and Silas and his traveling companions coming in contact with a slave girl. And so the first thing that I want to call your attention to as we look at the account that Luke records for us in Acts chapter 16, beginning in verse 16, has to do with the events that led to their prison stay. Paul and Silas are going to find themselves in jail, and we want to note what led them to that point in time. So, as we look at Acts chapter 16, the first thing that we think about in this point has to do with their meeting a slave girl. And as they met this slave girl, Luke provides a narrative for us in relationship to the problems that she had. So look, if you would, at verse 16. It happened as we went to prayer that a certain slave girl possessed with a spirit of divination met us who brought her masters much gain by fortune-telling. Verse 17, this girl followed Paul and us and cried out, saying, These men are the servants of the Most High God who proclaim to us the way of salvation. I take it from reading this account that this woman, this girl, was possessed by a demon. And of course, as you read read this narrative, you'll find out that she was a fortune teller. And she made a lot of money for her masters. And so Paul and Silas, they meet this girl. And she is declaring before those around her 
that these men were the servants of God and that they were proclaiming the way of salvation. Now, verse 18 tells us that she did this for many days. And Paul, being greatly annoyed or distressed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And he came out that very hour. Now, back in Mark 16... When Jesus gave the Great Commission, he told the apostles that in his name they would cast out demons. And so the apostles, Paul, obviously, had the power to cast out a demon. Now somebody might ask the question, why would, why would this have distressed Paul? The fact that she is saying, these men are servants of God and they are declaring the way of salvation. I believe the reason it distressed or annoyed Paul, he did not want the testimony of a demon-possessed girl. In other words, he did not want this, this particular girl acknowledging this under the reign or the rule of the devil. And so he cast this demon out. Now verse 19 tells us when our master saw that their hope of gain or profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas. One of, the, one of the best ways to get in trouble with somebody else is to get into their pocket. And that's what Paul and Silas did. Paul had cast out this demon that was possessing this girl. And these men, they realized that their hope for making money from her was gone. And so the Bible says they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to the authorities. Now, note if you would the events that began to unravel here that lead to their apprehension, to the fact that they're going to, to find themselves imprisoned. Verse 20, they brought them to the magistrates and said, these men being Jews exceedingly trouble our city. And they teach customs which are not lawful for us, being Romans, to receive or observe. The Romans, according to Roman law, they forbade introducing any new religion. Furthermore, they forbade the proselyting of any Roman citizens. The Jews, however, they were permitted to practice their religion. But these men, they're literally called on the carpet. And accusations are hurled against them. And so in verse 22, the text says, The multitude rose up against them. And the magistrates tore off their clothes and commanded them to be beaten with rods. When they had laid many stripes on them, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to keep them securely. Having received such a charge, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in stocks. And so here are Paul and Silas. They have been unfairly charged they're now thrust into prison their feet are fastened in stocks so here they were just a little bit earlier they're preaching they're teaching the gospel their efforts have been met with great results and now they're in prison and so we look at the events that led to their prison stay but now I want you to note the events that led to their preaching the savior so with this in mind look now at verse 25 as we look at verse 25, the first thing I want to call your attention to is their response to being in prison. Let me ask this question. Had you been in the shoes of Paul and Silas, how would you have reacted? Had you been unfairly beaten, charged, imprisoned, your feet have been fastened in stocks, 
Maybe you were cold. No doubt you're hurting. Maybe you're hungry. There are a lot of things that, that, that may be going on here as Luke relates unto us this narrative. But here are Paul and Silas, they're in prison. And look at what Luke says they were doing. At midnight, Paul and Silas prayed and sang praises or hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. I think about the prisoners who no doubt they, they, they have, have maybe heard about what's happened to Paul and Silas. And here are Paul and Silas, they're in prison, they're hurting, their sores haven't been treated, their stripes that have been laid upon their backs have not been treated. They're, they're no doubt in agony and yet they're praying to God, they're singing hymns to God and what a profound impression this would have made on those who were around them in other prison cells. But note now their release from prison. Verse 26, suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's chains were loosed. And the keeper of the prison, awaking from sleep and seeing the prison doors open, supposing the prisoners had fled, drew his sword and was about to kill himself. Here you have what I believe was panic on the part of this guard. You see, this guard had been entrusted with their care. And it was life for life. You let these men go, guess what? You're going to pay for it with your life. And so when this earthquake occurs, the prison doors are opened. And the chains are loosened from the prisoner's feet. This guy thought they're on the run. They're out of here. And so he's fearful, so much so that he's about to kill himself. But listen, if you would, to the plea of Paul and Silas. The text says in verse 26, or rather verse 28, Paul called with a loud voice saying, Do yourself no harm, for we are all here. And then verse 29, he called for light, ran in and fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. He brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? So here's a guy in great distress. I believe that we have this account here for a purpose. God saw fit to preserve this great account for our benefit. When you look at, at the plea to this man who was panicking, over the, the potential escape of the prisoners. This man asked a great question. What do I need to do to be saved? And so, note now, if you would, Paul and Silas as they begin preaching the Savior. First of all, I want to call your attention to the foundation of faith. Look at verse 31. Here's what Paul and Silas said. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. Now, why do you think Paul and Silas, upon hearing this question, what do I need to do to be saved? Why do you think they responded by saying, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you and your household, and you will be saved? Let me tell you why I believe 
they said this. This man was a pagan. He was a heathen. He was, of course, a guard. And he was under the influence of Rome. Now, there were a lot of, a lot of ideas floating in the Roman Greco world. For example, this man may have believed in any number of the Grecian deities. It may have been the case that he believed in some of the Roman deities. Did you know that during the first century there were Roman emperors, Caesars, that wanted to be addressed as Lord and God? Domitian is one example of that. He wanted people to address him as Lord and God. And so when Paul and Silas said, look, you need to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, he's saying, here's the foundation. You've got to have a foundation. You've got to have somebody to believe in. And what you've got to understand is the Roman gods, the Grecian gods, they're not going to save you. Now go back and look at Acts chapter 4. In Acts chapter 4, verse 12, do you remember what is recorded by Luke, the inspired historian? He said, neither is there salvation in any other. There is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Now, in the first century, one of the, one of the tasks before the apostles and the early church was to, was to declare to those people throughout the world that salvation is exclusive to one person. Jesus Christ. Listen to Jesus himself. He said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me in John 14, verse 6. And so we're talking about an exclusive Savior. And if this man believed in a multiplicity of deities, I don't know if he did or didn't. He may not even have believed in God. I don't know. The text doesn't say. But there had to be a platform upon which Paul and Silas could build. And so first, there is the foundation of faith. Now, the Hebrew writer said in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, without faith, it is impossible to be well-pleasing to God. You and I, we've got to have something to believe in. Look at the world in which we live. We live in a day and time when people literally wave off God. There are a lot of people in our highly intellectual society today that have the idea there's no God. And I'm talking about people that have acquired what we would call terminal degrees. In other words, they have a PhD degree, some have medical degrees, but nonetheless, they are intelligent people and they have dismissed God with a wave of a hand. So you and I, we too face similar circumstances from time to time. We have to begin laying a foundation when we talk to our friends and neighbors. And, and sometimes people that, that we come in contact with, they'll tell us right up front, look, I don't believe in God. Well, if somebody doesn't believe in God, what do you have to do? You have to lay a foundation. You've got to prove to them that there is a God, the existence of God. So there is this foundation of faith. But then secondly, let's talk about the facts of the faith. Look, if you would, at verse 32. In verse 32, Luke said, Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him, and to all who were in his house. So here's Paul and Silas, and what are they doing? They are speaking or preaching or teaching the word of the Lord unto him. What do you think that encompassed? 
What do you think Luke meant when he said they spoke the word of the Lord unto him and to his household? I believe that first of all, they preached the man, Jesus. Now again, we're talking about a foundation. Here's a man that asked the question, what must I do to be saved? He needed someone to believe in. That was Jesus. And so I'm convinced that they would have laid that foundation and begun talking about Jesus of Nazareth. The fact that Jesus was, that he is God in the flesh. Now, again, there are a lot of people in our world today that if you were to ask them, what do you think about Jesus? Do you remember Jesus asked that question on one occasion? What do you think of Christ? Whose son is he? That is a relevant question. Well, this man, he had to come to an understanding about Jesus. And so I believe that he would have talked to him about the deity of Christ. The fact that Jesus was God in the flesh. Paul would say to the Colossians in Colossians chapter 2 verse 9, In him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. No doubt he would have talked to him about the fact that Christ died for our sins, that he was buried, raised again the third day. That is, in summation, the gospel, according to 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 4. When Paul wrote to the saints in Ephesus in Ephesians 1, verse 13, he said, In whom you also believed, after that you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. The gospel of salvation, the word of truth, preaching the word of the Lord. Those are synonymous phrases. In other words, they really point to one and the same, and that is the gospel. Here are Paul and Silas. They are preaching the man Jesus. They're talking about Jesus of Nazareth, the man that lived, performed miracles, spoke great words, died for our sins, raised again the third day. So they, they no doubt preached this. But then also, they preached the plan of Jesus. Now somebody might ask the question, how do you know that they preached the plan of Jesus? Well, look now at verse 33. In verse 33, you see a change taking place in the heart of this jailer. He took them the same hour of the night and washed their stripes. Why do you think he washed their stripes? Would an unbelieving man, a man that truly thought these guys were guilty of the charges leveled against them, would he have done that? Is this not indicative to some extent of the fact that he was making a change? We call it repentance. That there is this change taking place. And then look at what is said in verse 33. And immediately he and all his family were baptized. Now let's just pause there for a minute. What do we have taking place? Well, we have the foundation of faith. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you and your household, and what? You'll be saved. So there is this fundamental truth you have to believe. You have to have someone to believe in. What did Jesus say in John 8, verse 24? Except you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. In other words, except you believe that I am, that is the great I am, you'll die in your sins. So this man has heard about the importance of believing. 
And then we see, as we noted just a moment ago, the fact that he's making a change, which indicates repentance by the washing of their stripes. And then immediately, he and his family are baptized into Christ. Now, did you read anywhere in this narrative where the apostle Paul and Silas, Silas preached or taught him baptism? I didn't read anything in this text, did you? Let's go back and read it again because I want you to see this. Look at verse 30. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? So they said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the, they spoke the, word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night, washed their stripes, and immediately he and all his family were baptized. There is not one word in that narrative about Paul and Silas preaching or teaching New Testament baptism. How then did he know anything about being baptized? Let me tell you how he knew it. Because if you're gonna preach Jesus, if you're gonna preach the man Jesus, then you have to preach the plan of Jesus. You have to tell somebody, here's what you need to do to be saved. How do we know that? Well, we infer that. Immediately, he was baptized. Now, let me ask this question. Why was he baptized? Here's what Peter said on Pentecost Day. Baptism and repentance are for the remission of sins. That is, for forgiveness. Nowhere in the New Testament do you read about somebody believing, being saved, and then being baptized. That's not the right order. The right order is believing, repenting, confessing, being baptized, and then being saved. When we're saved, what happens? All of our sins are washed away. In Acts 22, verse 16, when Paul recounted his conversion, he said, Ananias instructed him, and now, why do you tarry? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins calling on the name of the Lord. When we're baptized into Christ, we then contact the blood of Christ. So what do you have? You have belief. This man believed. You have also his repentance. And then you have his baptism or his baptism into Christ. When he was baptized into Christ, what did the Lord do? He placed him in his family. That is, in the family of God. Acts 2 verse 47, the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 13, by one spirit are, are we all baptized into one body. What's the body? What's the one body? Well, Paul said in Colossians 1, 18, he is the head of the body of the church. So when a person is baptized, they then appropriate the grace of God, the blood of Christ. They become members of the body of Christ. They are among the saved, the redeemed. Note if you would, immediately these people were baptized. They didn't wait. Why did they not wait? Because if they had not obeyed the gospel and inclusive in that gospel plan, baptism, they would have been lost. They would have remained in a lost condition. So when they were baptized into Christ, they went from without to within the body. They were no longer without hope, without God, but at that point in time, they enjoyed all the benefits and blessings 
of Almighty God in Christ Jesus. Now, let me just ask this question. What must I do to be saved? The Bible plainly says. The Bible plainly says we have to believe Jesus is the Son of God. John 8, verse 24. The Bible forthrightly says we must repent because except we repent, we will perish. That's what Jesus said in Luke 13, 3. We willingly confess the name of Christ before others, Matthew 10, 32. And then we are immersed or baptized into Christ so that every sin can be washed away, Acts 2, 38. Our text here, Acts chapter 16, there are any number of cases of conversion in the New Testament, in the book of Acts. Each and every conversion points to one and the same thing, that people believed, they repented, they confessed, they were baptized. In so doing, they became members of the body of Christ. Now, granted, not every step, not every step in the plan of salvation is explicitly stated in the conversion stories of Acts. But there is a figure of speech known as synecdoche, which means a part for the whole. When Jesus said in Mark 16, 16, he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. He wasn't negating the importance of repentance. He's simply stating a fundamental fact. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. So, here's the second question. Do we believe what the Bible says? Are we willing to accept the testimony of Scripture? You see, this book right here is what's going to judge us one day. Jesus said, He that rejecteth me and receiveth not my words hath one that judgeth him. The word that I have spoken the same shall judge him in the last day, John 12, verse 48. I'm not going to be judged on the basis of any kind of manual of faith, I'm not going to be judged on the basis of some catechism that has been penned by mankind. I'm not going to be judged on the basis of my opinion. I'm going to be judged on the basis of what God in his word has stipulated. And so, question number three. Have you done what the Bible says to do in order to become a Christian? In other words, have you followed God's master plan, his plan of redemption? When Paul wrote to the saints in Rome, he said, but God be thanked that whereas you were the servants of sin, you obeyed from the heart that form, that pattern of doctrine delivered unto you. That form or pattern of doctrine is simply the New Testament. We live today in accordance with the law of Christ, Galatians 6, 2. It's called the perfect law of liberty in James 1, 25. When we comply with what this book teaches, guess what? We become New Testament Christians. When we do what they did nearly 2,000 years ago, we become what they were. What were they? They were New Testament Christians. Nothing more, nothing less. We become members of the body of Christ. We become a part of the redeemed, God's family. And so... I would hope and pray that you have followed the teaching of the Bible. Maybe you're here and you haven't obeyed the gospel. Maybe you've never been baptized into Christ for the remission of your sins. 
There are some people that believe you're saved first and then you're baptized. There are some people that say that baptism is an outward sign of an inward faith. That is not biblical. What is biblical is that we believe Jesus to be the Son of God, we repent of our sins, we confess his name, and we're buried with him in a watery grave of baptism. Then we become members of the body of Christ. This past week, two people have been baptized into Christ right here. There may be others that need to do the same. If you're here this morning and you need to respond to heaven's invitation, we beg, we plead with you to come. Maybe, you're, maybe you don't want to be baptized in front of this assembly. That's okay, we can do it in private. We can do it before services, we can do it after services, we can do it during services. The choice is yours. The main thing, you need to be baptized if you haven't. If you're not faithful to Christ, here's what you need to do. You need to come home. The Bible says, confess your faults one to another, pray one for another. We'd be happy to pray with you and for you today. Thank you for listening to the Anchor of the Soul. Your speaker has been Mike Hickson, preacher for the Olive Branch Church of Christ, located at 9100 East Sandage Road in Olive Branch, Mississippi. To hear this lesson again, go to olivebranchchurchofchrist.org. Tune in next Sunday for more of the Anchor of the Soul. Will your anchor hold in the storms of life When the clouds unfold their wings of strife? When the strong tides lift and the cables strain Will your anchor drift or firm remain? We have an anchor that keeps the soul Steadfast and sure while the billows roll Fastened to the rock which cannot move Grounded firm and deep in the Savior's love